there is no time like the 2020s to start a company, to start a startup. You know, with the rise of the internet, you can learn anything at a very low cost, if not for free. You can build anything without needing to know how to code with tools like Bubble and Adalo. And you can get the word out about your products for free by using you know sites like Twitter, Product Hunt, and Reddit. There's no time like the 2020s to build a company. Yet one element of kind of entrepreneurship and company building that hasn't caught up with the times is venture capital. Unless you live you know in San Francisco or New York, chances are you may know what venture capital is, but you may not really know how it works. You may not know who the good VCs are. And you may not know how they think. So with this podcast of forward-thinking investors, I want to dive into this world. I want to help anyone in the world understand what is venture capital, who are the great venture capitalists, and how do they think about their day-to-day with the goal to help more people understand how it works so they can go out and raise capital for themselves. And they can build billion-dollar companies just like you know Larry did at Google or Travis did at Uber or Katrina did at Stitch Fix. That can be you, but it just takes some education. And I'm using this podcast as a medium to teach everyone more about venture capital. So if you want to learn about it, you want to dive in, you want to meet some awesome investors, stick around, listen to some episodes, and I, and I hope you enjoy. All right, how's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Investors, where we talk to investors about companies, markets, founders, and how they got into investing. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Clara Brenner, who's the managing partner of the Urban Innovation Fund. Welcome to the show. How's it going? You know, it's going. It's almost Thanksgiving, so feeling pretty excited. It is almost Thanksgiving. I'm, I'm extremely <laughs> excited for the war in my family between which pie is better, apple pie or pumpkin pie. I'm on the apple pie side, so we'll, totally. we'll, we'll see who joins the joins the dark forces. I share your feelings. Very nice. Very nice. Well, cool. Well, so you, you know, you're a venture capitalist, which is awesome. This is a show where, you know, we talk to VCs um, and usually the first question that we dive into is everyone has a different path into venture. So, so what's your path? How did you break into venture capital? Um, my background is actually in commercial real estate development. Um, after college, that's where I was working. And um, I went back to business school because I thought I was going to start my own firm in that space. And um, while I was there, I ended up kind of catching the, the tech bug and really uh, shared a lot of similar feelings about the space as one of my other classmates, Julie. Um, we'd both been working for I guess what we would now call urban innovation companies, although we didn't know it at the time. Um, So Julie was working um, at a company called Revolution Foods, which is a healthy school meal provider. And I was working at a company called Fundrise, which kind of crowdfunds dollars from the community to invest in baskets of institutional real estate. Um, And this was right around the time that companies like Lyft and Airbnb were just getting you know, off the ground. And we felt like they had a huge amount in common with the places where we'd been working. And so like any good grad students, we embarked on a research study of, of a space that we started calling urban innovation. So, you know, companies that are using technology to make urban living better. Um, and from there, you know, things kind of took off. We, we identified a lot of challenges that these companies have in common, uh, most notably a lot of regulatory and political challenges. Um, and when we graduated, um, we took our research to Blackstone um, and pitched them on the idea of helping us kind of validate that research and show that, that there really was an ecosystem of entrepreneurs interested in um, solving community challenges in cities. And so we did that for three years. And um, many of the companies that came out of our offices, these were really like idea stage companies that we were incubating. Um, they went on to, to do quite well. And that kind of gave us the credibility to go launch a more traditional institutional venture fund in 2016. 
Awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. So let's kind of talk about, because like in your name, you almost have your, your sector, your market yeah. kind of in the name, <laughs> but let's kind of like walk through what exactly is that or urban innovation? Um, what types of, you know, companies are you funding? Are there certain sectors? Um, I guess, how do you kind of define that? And if a founder is listening, like, how do they know if they're kind of in like in the urban innovation kind of space versus not? Yeah. You know, I think Lately, urban has become a hot topic. And I think most people, when they say they're interested in urban, they really just mean transportation <laughs> um, and maybe prop tech. Um, and for us, we have a much more expansive view. For us, we're looking for companies that are um, tackling the kinds of problems that mayor's offices around the country really prioritize, but um, haven't necessarily been able to tackle sufficiently on their own. So it definitely includes what you would think of as more traditional smart city sectors. So, you know, transportation, prop tech, utility management, things like that. Um, but we also actively invest in areas like uh, FinTech and education and the future of work, since these are all factors that play into, you know, anyone's experience of living in cities. Um, and so we get to see a lot of different types of companies. It's funny, every once in a while, we'll get an entrepreneur that, that you know, says, oh, I don't really understand, you know, what urban is. I don't think we fit. My advice to all entrepreneurs is never say that to an entrepreneur, <laughs> I mean, to an investor. Um, you let an investor decide whether you fit into their thesis or not, because we have such a broad mandate that, um, you know, we, we like to look at a, a real variety of, of different types of companies. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate you sh sharing that. So you have Urban Innovation Fund. Um, walk me through when you started it, you know, a few years back. How did you decide to set it up in regards to stage? Like, you know, are you investing, you know, pre-seed, seed, series A or later? And then additionally, um, how do you kind of think about portfolio construction when you got started? Were you going to write, you know, a few checks into, you know, a bunch of, or into, uh, a few big checks into a few companies, you know, a lot of small checks? How do you kind of think about you know, what to do for your portfolio construction for the first fund? Yeah. So for us, our, we invest at the pre-seed and seed stage. We're usually one of or the first institutional check in the door for companies. We're writing checks initially of around 750K. Uh, we can lead. We follow along. We're pretty flexible there. And just generally looking to be helpful, hands-on investors. Although we do place a special emphasis on regulatory and political support just because it tends to come up pretty frequently with many of the companies in our portfolio, although it's definitely, definitely not a requirement to be part of the portfolio. Um, for fund one, uh, our fund one was 25 million. Uh, we made 23 investments out of that fund. Um, and for us, I think the balancing act has always been, um, you want to invest in enough companies that you have enough shots on goal, but you also need to control enough <laughs> of a stake in each company to potentially uh, drive real returns for the fund. Um, so we're on to fund two. We haven't announced the size yet, but we're targeting a similar number of companies. It's already um, bigger than fund one, which is exciting. Um, and, you know, so we do about six or seven deals a year, um, which, you know, gives us enough exposure, but also allows us to really build really close and strong relationships with our founders and also allocate enough of our fund for follow-on investing. We don't do follow on investing in all of our portfolio companies, but um, we do think it's really important to have the option um, just because, um, you know, coming in as that first institutional check in the door means you're really at risk for dilution since there's been this real proliferation of multiple seed rounds. It used to be, you know, you raise a seed round and then you raise a series A and now it's, you know, a pre-seed round and then a seed round and then, you know, a pre-series A or a seed two. And, um, you know, if we're that first check in the door, that's a lot of rounds to go through before you get to series A. And so, oops. could you try again? 
my husband just got me an Apple watch and I have no idea how to use it. It just said, it nice. just said it's Congrats off. on getting the Apple watch. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> but that's what you just heard that sound. No sweat. Um, but yeah, so for us, um, we really, we really try to get to know our companies well and, you know, build strong relationships with them, but also make sure we have enough relationships that, um, you know, some subset of companies will, will deliver strong returns for the fund. So if you're writing kind of that many checks throughout the year, um, you know, that kind of leads a lot of, a lot of room for like different types of activities, right? You know, you know, fundraising for future funds, meeting other investors, meeting founders, but I'm kind of curious for you, how do you break down like an average day for you? If like at the end of the day, like, you know, there's, um, you know, eight, nine, 10, you know, checks that are being written, you know, there's a lot of time to kind of fill to make sure you're getting into the best deals. What are you doing to fill kind of all that time? And what's your average day as an investor? It's hectic (laughs) and it's always different. I mean, fundraising is a major priority. And even when you're not actively raising a fund, you are fundraising, building relationships with new founders, attending events and podcasts like this to kind of continue to evangelize your firm is really important. Connecting with your founders. We do that through both structured check-ins. So on a monthly basis, we try to have a touch point with our founders just to um, see where we can be helpful and and make sure we're on the same page. Um, But also a lot of informal chats. Like we're definitely the kind of investors who get those text messages in the middle of the night on Saturday and we totally will respond <laughs> or early in the morning on a Tuesday. Um, I have an 11 week old baby, which basically means I never sleep. So I'm always around to chat. Um, and that's really important for us. We want to be those types of investors who can be trustworthy partners and, and where our founders feel like they really can look to us as a reliable um, support system. And so uh, it's definitely really busy, um, but it's it's what we love to do. So you know, being, you know, an venture capitalist, you know, there's a few things that you're a lot of things you're looking at, but mainly like you have like market, right, which you've kind of already talked about what you like, but then you have, you know, team and like founder founders, right? What do you look for in like a founding team? And when someone kind of emails you, you get intro to someone, um, what kind of helps you get to the point where, oh, I'll take a meeting or oh, I'll like do deal diligence versus some that you might pass on? What's what's that kind of x factor with those founders? Well, you know, we look at every deal that comes across our desk, whether it's through social media or a direct email or an intro, we think that has translated to, um, frankly, a more diverse uh, demographic uh, makeup of our founding team, because we're not just looking for warm intros from other peer investors, although that's something that we do. Um, and so in terms of what we look for, I think um, teams that work well together are really important, especially for really early stage investing. You're, you're going off of an idea, a plan, you know, but, but ultimately what you're really backing is, is a team. And so teams that have had experience working together, um, teams that, you know, when you meet and talk to them, don't talk over each other. You just seem to have a really strong dynamic. But I think more and more we've, we've started talking about the need for founders who have strong fundraising ability and strong storytelling ability. I think for fund one, that was less of a priority. And we had a general perspective that, you know, we're comfortable taking on diamonds in the rough. And, you know, our goal is to find a really, you know, solid team with a really fantastic idea and we can help polish them up over time. But I think what COVID has really exposed is the fact that um, you, we need founders who can tell their own story from day one. And um, that doesn't mean that we can't support some level of polishing for sure. Um, that's part of our job, but um, 
there absolutely must be a member of the founding team who can be just an incredibly compelling evangelist for the business. And if you don't have that, um, it doesn't matter how smart you are. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a deal breaker for us. I'd like to say there's no CEOs before the series A. There's only chief evangelist office, <laughs> chief evangelist officers. Cause you really like, you need to like talk about it all the time. All the time. You know, Cause you're the ultimate com- competitor. I think a lot of startups or founders think, Oh, like we don't want to talk about our thing because competition. I'm like, no, I think the ultimate competition is just apathy that no one cares. Like no one cares right. about what you're doing. So you just like make them care. Um, so sure. I think, I think that's a, I think that's a great trait. Um, so what have been, um, you know, you said you started this fund um, and your firm in 2016. Um, you know, you, I'm going to guess you had a little bit of a different experience in 2020 running your fund than you did from 2016 to 2019. Tell me, what was it like being a, what is it like being a VC and needing to shift in a COVID era? And has things, have things actually changed that much? Or is it still kind of business as usual on like your uh, VC activities? In many ways, it's totally the same. Like we've always, like we've backed entrepreneurs that we hadn't met in person before, for example. Uh, we've done a lot of meetings over Zoom previously. And so that that element wasn't such a shock as I think it's been for many firms. But certainly I think the idea that everyone has sort of the same subset of companies they're talking to, that you can take so many more meetings now over Zoom means it almost feels like we're, we're dealing with more pipeline than we have ever have before and more competition because everyone is talking to the same people. Um, and so, I mean, that just makes us want to work harder. And ultimately, I think it's, it's perhaps a, a democratizing uh, sort of feature of COVID, um, you know, maybe one positive outcome of this generally horrendous time. Um, so that's been really interesting. Um, but yeah, I think by and large, our processes and procedures have remained the same. Our investing priorities have remained the same. I mean, it's interesting to hear so many investors come out now and say, you know, we think that the opportunities lie in areas like, um, you know, education, housing, and the built environment, workforce development. Like these are now like hot topics in the investing space that maybe weren't <laughs> pre-COVID. And these are core interests of ours as a firm. You know, we're looking for, um, technologies that are that are really touching the lives of, of everyday people and um, it's it's actually kind of nice to see other investors starting to prioritize those areas too it was so interesting I um, before I was full-time on forward thinking I was working for a company called Prenda which is an uh, education-based company in Arizona and we were kind of like one of the first if not the first like micro school type companies like that we started I don't know three and a half years ago um, and it's really interesting to see as COVID hit all of a sudden like everyone was into micro schools and like everyone was starting a micro school startup and like it was just I mean <laughs> I think that's great that's like a great thing as long as the founders are good and there's good intentions and stuff but it is interesting um, just to see how interests kind of waver depending on markets. Um, and um, actually, it's been another question that I wasn't planning on asking, but it, it just kind of popped up. There's some founders that, you know, are working in hot markets, you know, right now there's some hot markets and, but there's also markets that may not be hot at all. It might, there might be a founder that just really, really, really cares about somebody in a market, but it, it's not clear if it could be a billion dollar market or not. How do you evaluate like these founders working in kind of like random markets, but they really are passionate about it and they're very, um, you know, good at what they're doing. 
We love random markets. I think that's where so many of our of our strongest companies have come. You know, our, our goal is not to invest where everyone else is investing, but to invest in founders who are tackling really enormous problems in really large markets. And I'll give you an example that I know is a company near and dear to your heart, uh, a company called Catch. Um, so they're a portable benefits platform. We were their first external investor. We led their pre-seed round. Um, and at the time, people just thought we were nuts backing this company. You know, they, they essentially um, offer benefits to any type of worker, but they've had particular traction with like gig economy, 1099 freelance type workers who aren't getting any benefits to their job. So you can go to the platform and get access to health insurance, life insurance, saving for retirement. Um, the big one for gig economy workers is paid leave. You know, if you're a hairdresser and you haven't been able to work for the last couple months because of COVID, you know, that's potentially devastating. You haven't been paid for that time. And so they actually have a product that helps you plan for and save for those types of life events. This is an area we've been thinking about for a long time, you know, backing companies in the urban space. We see a lot of companies that are employing, um, gig economy type models. And we recognize a lot of the challenges and problems with come with those types of models. And so when we came across Catch, which had an extremely strong team, great tech, a really compelling product, um, we just jumped on it. We knew this was something really special. Um, and having seen what's happened in the economy, but also just a larger interest in the future of work, all of a sudden they're like a, such a hot <laughs> commodity um, that, you know, they went on to raise a, a a larger seed round that was led by COSLA. Um, they've just grown dramatically. They're now one of the few companies in the country that actually um, you can shop for your public healthcare option through them. Um, so just, it's really cool to see what they've been able to accomplish. But, um, you know, it wasn't like we were investing in this company because anyone literally on earth cared about this topic at the time. Um, and so, you know, we want to find founders who are thinking ahead of the curve and not just following following trends. And, and I think Catch is a great example of that. That's like the, uh, the framework I use there is like mercenary versus missionary, like missionaries just work on what they want to work on, you know, and, and you know, no matter what's going on out there. Um, so there's a lot of founders that are listening to this and a lot of founders just in general that I'm sure reach out to you that have differing, you know, knowledge bases on how venture capital works. They probably have different, you know, knowledge. They may know a lot about you. They may know very little about you, but you're getting all sorts. What is one thing that you wish founders knew more about venture capital in, in general that they don't, that could potentially like better their chances at getting a deal with you or just any VC, um, you know, that some, some things that may not usually be obvious to, to someone, you know, that reaches out to you. That's such a good question. I mean, this isn't true for all venture capitalists, but it's true for some, and it's definitely true for us. Um, we ourselves, Julie and myself, um, as the founders of the Urban Innovation Fund, are entrepreneurs ourselves. So we, you know, had to fundraise, sell people on our mission, go without a salary for a long time, market ourselves, manage people, you know, run our business with the hopes of making a big profit. Um, and so I think we have a lot more empathy. <laughs> for um, the experience of the startups that we meet and startups that we're funding that I think a lot of people realize. Um, we don't see ourselves as different from any of the founders that we interact with. We see ourselves as founders. Um, and I think that that hopefully translates into a really strong working relationship with the teams that we ultimately engage with. But it's something that I, I don't think a lot of people think about, but you know, we, we, are, we are a startup ourselves, um, founded in 2016. And that's definitely how we, we operate. And if 
someone's listening to this either, you know, today or the listening to it, you know, years after we record and they're like, <laughs> this person's awesome. You know, I, I want to share, you know, I want to learn more about them. Um, you know, learn more about the firm. How can people learn, learn about you online? Do you have a blog? Do you have a website, Twitter? How, how can people kind of get in touch or learn more about you or the firm? Yeah. Uh, the best way is probably just to go to our website, urbaninnovationfund.com. Um, and there's a, a link where you could sign up for more information from us, but also contact our firm. You can also, um, reach out to me on on Twitter. Um, I definitely look at, and all of our team looks at all of our, our inbound messages. So, um, you know, feel free to reach out. It's actually, I want to finish with this question. Um, Cause I, on my, on my other, the founder podcast, um, I, everyone says like they're on Twitter, hit me up on Twitter, but I think it like actually, um, I haven't asked a VC before you just mentioned like you're on Twitter. Everyone's on Twitter. You didn't say, you know, hit me up on LinkedIn and mail. You said Twitter. What, what is it about Twitter that is, you know, makes you, you know, you know, always on it. And what what are your thoughts on founders kind of being on Twitter, um, you know, kind of in your view? You know, we also look at our LinkedIn messages. So, you know, whatever works for you is fine by me. I would say Twitter just tends to be where more people are. And so that's usually what we lead with. But, you know, for us, I think we, we try to prioritize all of the platforms. At the same time, we see, we fund less than half a percent of the companies that we <laughs> so we may not respond to every deal that comes our way, but um, we definitely have seen it um, if you send it our way. I think Twitter is just a really effective way to evangelize your business. Um, going back to the catch example of their CEO, um, Kristen is just like an incredibly dynamic presence. And I think especially during COVID, um, when it's so hard to like get out and connect with customers, um, she and, and other founders in our portfolio have really been able to leverage uh, platforms like Twitter to really raise their profile as executives, but also just like actually talk about the business and get in front of customers. Um, so I think that can be a very effective tool. At the same time, um, I should probably like take more of my own medicine. I'm I'm not super active on Twitter as a poster myself. I'm more of a consumer of content. And I know that's a, a real criticism of some venture capitalists, especially I think, um, and this is a generalization, but a lot of women venture capitalists have have less of a presence on Twitter than some of their male counterparts. Um, and so it's something I, I think about a lot, but I also like, that's just not our culture as a firm. We're not, I guess, super, super self-promotional, um, which maybe we should be more of, uh, but I definitely think it's an effective tool for, for anyone, especially founders. Um, and so we, we are always interested to check out when we're evaluating a company, you know, what are their C-level people putting out there in the world on, on various platforms, Twitter and, and other platforms, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, et cetera. Sweet. Well, I appreciate you kind of diving into those platforms and I appreciate you coming onto the podcast. You know, you're, you're building an, an awesome firm. I'm really excited to see the future investments that you put out, Thanks. you know, best of luck building the Centino world-class uh, firm that lasts for decades and decades. Oh, I appreciate that. All right. Thank you all for listening to that podcast of Forward Thinking Investors live from the radio station in Forward Thinking City. What is Forward Thinking City? Forward Thinking City is the number one virtual community for people to break into tech and startups. We have a combination of AMAs with the, the best founders and investors out there. And we have educational sessions on how to fundraise for your startup and how to learn to build 
products with no code. And of course, we have tons of networking events, for example, open coffee hours and pitch club, um, so you can get practice meeting other people and pitching your product in front of dozens, if not hundreds of other residents. For Thinking City is $20 a month, and in exchange, you get access to all of these founders, all of these potential future employees, these future investors, as well as the education that you need to take your startup to the next level. If you are trying to level up as a founder or an investor or a startup enthusiast, go to forwardthinking.city and we will see you over there. Note some of the events are free, so if you're just interested, if this piques your interest, go to forwardthinking.city and RSVP to some events. And if you feel like it, sign up as a resident and I'll see you on the other side.